Well, good morning. Uh, we are uh, continuing our series in First Peter, and last week we looked at what it looks like in the midst of uh, being in exile in this world, uh, being in a place, strangers in a strange land, a place that is actually not our home, ultimately. What it looks like to put our feet down in the midst of kind of chaos and difficulty around us into eternal truths. And Peter starts there. But now today, Peter's going to get into the next section, which is he's going to begin to address how do we begin to navigate uh, this world, this place of exile, this strange land. Uh, I want to give you a picture as we begin. Uh, 2005, uh, uh, David Foster Wallace, well-known author, Infinite Jest, some of you may know of him, uh, he began a commencement speech. Uh, and he began it with what he called a uh, parable-ish story. And it goes like this. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, good morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? Right? So the whole point of this is that we live in times, every culture, every place, every society, in which we swim in waters that are the default realities around us, and we're not even aware of it. That we live in realities and defaults and have assumptions about how the world uh, works, what the world is, what our purpose in life is. Questions like, where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live? What will happen to me? Every society in history has provided a framework. And then also along with that framework, you call it a worldview. Habits and whatnot that reinforce that worldview. And they give us the bigger story of what it means to be a human being. And so what Peter knows is that as we begin to now live in a world in which we're strangers in a strange land, he's saying, here's the thing. You live and swim and eat, live, breathe the same cultural realities as the culture around you. And you have to be aware of the assumptions that are there. And if you see and you're aware of the assumptions that are there, then you can actually see that you are not actually just merely a member of this water and this reality, but you've actually been given a new reality, a reality that's truer, that's deeper, that's behind this reality that's immediately in front of you. But you need to see it if you're going to have hope, if you're going to be able to live life with joy. And so what Peter is going to do today is he's going to give us a framework of hope. And then after that framework of hope, he's going to give us three habits of hope that are going to help us to kind of uh, meld this into our souls as we're going about life and just swimming through the waters of life. And so let's pray and then we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, that you have uh, revealed to us the reality of the universe, Lord, that you've revealed to us what it means to be a human being, what it means to know you, what it means to walk with you, what it means to have joy, to have life, to have everlasting life. You've declared the end from the beginning. And so, Lord, this morning, I ask that you would help these truths to find a place in our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to feel the jolt of Peter's opening here. Because remember, Peter is writing to folks who are in the diaspora, they're spread out throughout Asia Minor, and in this day, they're, they're under the Roman rule, and they're, they're pretty oppressed, they're, their life is pretty suffocating, the existent, the reality of it is. And, and, and so in the midst of it, he knows that his audience is actually in times of great uncertainty, times of fear, times of 
just sensing at all times their vulnerability of being outcast from polite society. And yet into the midst of it, Peter immediately says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you can imagine when he just jumps right into that, that they're going, wait, uh, are you not able to read the room, Peter? <laughs> like, do you not realize what reality is like for us right now? And it, but why can Peter say this? Because I think it'd be easy to jump into this and go, well, Peter's just completely unaware of what's going on. Or what Peter is doing is Peter is just taking, kind of a, avoiding reality, not really talking about what's really happening in the world around them. Is Peter doing that? Is Peter just trying to essentially help them kind of escape from reality for a moment? Let's live in the fantasy of religion and tell you a nice little fable or a myth. I don't think that. I think what Peter is doing and why he jumps straight into this the way he does is because Peter is not helping them to catch on to some kind of a fable to just kind of numb themselves to the reality. What Peter is doing is he's actually pointing them to, helping them escape to a greater and truer reality. The one that they can or already have in Jesus Christ. See, one of the things as you jump into this is that there were a, the cultural waters of their day. There are terms that are loaded here that we miss in our context of reading. But in the first century, they would not have missed which is that the term Lord, kurios, would be a word that was actually used of the Caesar, of the Roman uh, king, leader, the Herod, who was over all of this dominion and, and, and ruled over it. And so if he moved his finger, then the world changed. And, and it was so easy for them in the waters that they swam and the default assumption was if he, if that Herod, if that man, if he would lift his finger, then everything would change and finally everything in my life would go well. If he would just tolerate us, then all of a sudden all of the bad stuff would disappear. And see what Peter's saying right away is no, 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 no. You don't see that he is not ultimately the Lord. The Lord's name is Jesus Christ. And he reigns now and he will reign forevermore. And he is the one that if he moves his finger, the Herods cannot stop him. A thousand Herods could not thwart him. And then Jesus goes on, he says, so you, you can imagine in the first century, see we, if you had to relocate, these are in the diaspora. So they had to flee persecution. If you're in this century, you know, now we have to move that wouldn't be fun. You got to quit your job. You got to find a new livelihood, but you jump on LinkedIn, right? Or match.com or wait, that's relation. Anyways, but you know what I mean. You, maybe you need a relationship too, but you jump on something to find a job, right? And then you land there, you do some interviews and you go into a job. Ancient Near East, it wasn't done that way. You would have grown up in a family where let's say you're a blacksmith. You would have trained with your dad to be a blacksmith for that community. When, when you just up and left, you couldn't just up and, and move into a new area in a completely different context, probably with different languages being spoken, and to just jump in as this person from the outside, you would be suspect. It would be very, very difficult to start that again there because there are already blacksmiths there, and you're a threat. So you can imagine as these Christians are laying there, they also are completely destitute. They don't have a way of making ends meet. They're probably trying to have a garden in their backyard just to, to have something to eat. And it was so easy, you can imagine, swimming in the assumed cultural waters. That if there was just a way that I could have a job, if I could just get, find a way to earn a living, if that, then everything would be fixed. Now, obviously that's important. You have to find a way. But Peter says in the midst of it, you know that actually the reality that you have 
the thing that you really have, the thing that's behind the reality that's all around you, and the thing that you can, it's the only thing you can see because it's pressing in on you. Do you see that you actually have, he says, a, a faith, a salvation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And he goes on to say, it's tested genuineness of faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Since you see in the midst of when you're like, if I could just get some coin, if I could just get some gold coin, if I could just have something that give me an income, then everything would be better. And he says, do you see that you have something that cannot be corrupted? Something that's even better than gold that will never fade? The thing that when they put you down into the ground, they can't, they don't send you with a bank account, right? That gets handed off to someone else. Yet you're given something that lasts and doesn't fade. A salvation riches, an inheritance, something to give your life for. I'm halfway tempted right now to, makes me immediately want to go into, right now the waters we swim in, will everything inflate? What will happen then? Go get gold, right? Yet there is something even greater than gold that does not perish. Now, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself and it would be easy to jump into this text and just go line by line and show you how Peter is actually doing something completely countercultural with the language that he's using here. And he's saying there's a reality that's behind this reality and the waters that we swim in that you've been given that you have in Christ. And do, do you see these things in the midst of what's so captivating right now and overwhelming and suffocating to you? But what I think will be helpful is to give you kind of a framework to, to lay, hang these things in. Because what Peter's doing here is he's saying from A to Z, the reality of the world you live in is completely different than what you're probably thinking the default, in the default assumptions of everyday life. And so what Peter is doing here is he actually walks them through, giving them a new, what would you call, worldview or a framework. And here's what I'm going to do. Uh, every... Every worldview has four components. Peter's going to give us each of these. And I know that this is going to be a little bit, at times it's going to be a little bit like kind of heady, a little bit. Um, here's what, I know it's Labor Day weekend. You're like, wait, we're supposed to rest from labor this weekend, right? Uh, just work a little bit with this because it's incredibly important. And I think this matters. One of the things that we said last week, and I, I think that we've gone from a time when Christianity, everyone says it right or wrong, to now everyone's saying it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. It just matters if you're good or bad. So no one anymore is saying, well, you're just wrong. The debates were like that when I was in college. The debates now are, are you bad because of what you believe? But see, where we're going to go next, if we're not careful as the church, is we need to begin addressing what's really going on in the world around us, or else it's no longer even going to be that. It's just going to be a matter of, does the church even matter? Does it even matter? Does the gospel even matter? Does it speak to our times? Here's what I mean. Peter is going to give him the four components of a worldview. And he's going to say that these, we need these, and we need to understand each of these in order to actually be able to navigate the world and the waters that we swim in in our culture, but to do it faithfully and navigate it with joy and life and hope. First one is the reality, okay? I'm going to say some big, okay, if you're a philosophy major, I'm talking about ontology. Back to English now, okay? So first we're going to talk about reality. Then we're going to talk about revelation, how we know, how we have meaning, epistemology. Then we're going to talk about uh, righteousness, morality, ethics. And then we're going to talk about from there, result, teleology. Where is this whole thing going? 
What's the end result? What's the outcome? Okay, first one, reality. What is life? Every worldview has to give you some kind of a reality where everything comes from. We live in an age, and this is why it's important, we live in an age where we have waters that we swim in, default assumptions about what the cosmos is, what cosmology says, where this all came from, where reality came from. And most of them say something too effective that this is the result of a bunch of random atoms that eventually collided enough and in a certain kind of pattern that eventually gave rise to the world we know it today. The issue with that is that that means that every single aspect of being in this world is left to chance. But every aspect of being in this world is just something that randomly has come together. And that means that whatever is going on in your life, the only thing you can ground it in is that there's just whatever material realities are around you. And you have to start grabbing onto those realities. And this is why it matters in terms of what Peter is saying here. Peter starts by saying, do you know that there is a father? That God is a father and he has a son. See, why this matters is that and this is something that actually from medieval times, this was one of the great apologetical arguments of the times. Because all the other entities or all the other religions would say there's one God and he just created the world out of power. And so he did it to complete himself. And now you must complete him. This is as good as it got in religion. But Christianity came along and said, no, 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 no. That's, that's not at all our worldview. Our worldview is that there has eternally been a father who had joy and delight and love in a son. And that son had joy and delight and love in a spirit. And they were a triune community of love and delight and glory. And out of that love and delight, God didn't just try to complete himself. He overflowed with love and he created a world that's hardwired with that glory and that beauty and that truth and he placed humanity in it so they would know him. In other words, we live in a world that is not by accident. It is not random chance. It is a world that has a personal God behind it, and he is a father who sends a son who he loves into this world so that we might be reconciled to relationship with him. I don't know about your story. I think one of the things in today's world as well that's underneath this is that, and we'll come back to this, but we kind of all have to make our own meaning now. And because of that, that actually means that we actually don't have a shared cosmology or origin story. Yeah, I can talk about evolution and all these things that we have. There are lots of options. Really what it comes down to is our real, your origin story, default, swimming in the waters of our culture, is the day you were born. That's actually everyone's default origin story. And it's up to you to create meaning for your life and, dis and construct something to live for. Why this hits me is, I realized as a kid, I struggled with something I could never put my finger on until later. I, I'm actually the result of a college fling, or a summer fling. And, and so I, I came along and I, I was unwanted. And actually my, my mother, she went to the appointment because she was being pushed to abort me. She went to the appointment at the last minute left and said, I can't do this. But I remember as a kid, there was always that sense that I knew in some sense, I just kind of happened upon them. I was just some burden that showed up one day and I never could put my finger out until later on I realized that perhaps it isn't all an accident. 
that there's a God who intimately wove me together in my mother's womb, that even when all the world around was saying, hey, this is just an accident, this is just, just get rid of this, just, just move on from this. What was happening, in fact, was God was working a plan. And here's the thing, you need to know that God was at work long before you entered the stage of this world. He foreknew you as we saw last week. The ground of the reality of your existence is that you have been placed on a stage of glory and you have been placed there to know glory intimately. That's reality. Blessed be the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and he has given us a living hope, giving us life in him. That's reality. Next one. Revelation. What's the meaning of life? How can we know anything? I mean, ask yourself, how can we know anything? Now, here's why this is incredibly important now. Uh, if, if we, if you live in a society, how do I sum this up? If you live in a society where everything, because here's where we're, we're being consistent in our world now. If we, our default is that everything in the world is by accident, then that means that nothing actually has any meaning behind it. It wasn't designed for any purpose. If there's a rock in a field, you're like, what's the purpose of that rock? I don't know, the rock's just there, right? What's the meaning and purpose of life? And so what you have to do is we have to socially construct meaning. So somewhere along the way, we got together and we started saying, well, this is meaning and that's meaning. We started making up kind of tables and fables of, of, of different things that tell us what meaning is and romance stories and whatnot and origin myths and morality and, and all these things. And we created them and somebody constructed them. And here's the thing we're waking up to nowadays. If it is all by chance, someone got to construct it, then who got to construct it and how? See, what's happening is we're actually losing the artifice of if we don't have actual Judeo-Christian realities behind our worldview, then there actually is nothing there but to deconstruct in order to construct something in its place. And the thing is, what happens is, right now, that means the best way to find meaning is actually to deconstruct meaning. And it's one of the realities, especially a lot of you are younger, that you are growing up with. And right now, it's hard to even imagine what is the meaning of all this? What is the purpose of all this? And this is why right now, everything is fighting against and trying to understand how we're the product of linguistic systems, power relations, arbitrary cultural norms. And so what you have to do is you have to tear all those things down and deconstruct all those things in order to get to the studs. And I think in many ways, I mean, I think there's very good things to be said about it. Whatever is culturally constructed, it does need to be reconsidered. But the issue is, if you keep deconstructing down to the studs, the question is, you get down to the foundation, how far do you have to go before you realize there's actually nothing there? And then where you build from there? It's a profound reality in our day. And what Peter says is you can have and know truth because God has revealed who he is and has revealed the meaning of all things. Hebrews 11.3 says that God created the world by his word and all by his word, all things were made, both seen and unseen. In other words, he's saying out of God's mouth, out of his very soul, out of his very being, he spoke and he spoke truth. And out of that truth, it accomplished its purpose and it created a world that 
was designed and hardwired with his very heart, with his very glory. And into it, he gave it meaning according to truth and goodness and beauty. That's why God in creation said it is good. And then when it was complete with man and all that, he said it is very good. Because God imbued this world with meaning and purpose. And, he's, and not only did his, he by his word speak the world into existence, but when we fell and followed from him, God then sent his word, Jesus Christ, his very son, his very heart, to demonstrate to us, to save us, to accomplish and demonstrate that he loves his people, that he loves his children, that he wants us to know him, that he wants us to know glory, that he wants us to be freed. And now in Jesus Christ, not only do we have a path to salvation, but we see what it means to actually be a human being who walks with God in that reef. Peter's saying, in the midst of all of the troubles, in the midst of where if everything's socially constructed, when everyone then around you is saying, that's why it's so crushing when you're socially banished from society. And even more so today, why it's so hard on social media because of everything is socially constructed and our identities are socially constructed. That means when people speak about your identity socially, it flattens you. That's why it hits in ways that are deeper than they ever have been before. That's why I don't think your generation is just a bunch of, not, not marshmallows, what do they say? Fl uh, soft. You guys know snowflakes, yes. There you go. marshmallows. Uh, this is sticky and gooey. Uh, snowflakes. It's because you've been set up for your entire identity to be built on something that is a complete house of cards. And then you live your lives in a place where that is constantly being berated. That's why it hits you in such a deep way. It's because the worldview, the waters we're swimming in, it is too crushing a reality to build, to even know where to begin to build an identity in that reality. But then it's a whole nother crushing reality for that to come in socially and crush you. It's a catch 22. What Peter is saying here is that there is a God and he has revealed himself in his son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And not just to save you legally, but to invite you into a relationship with him. God says, look to him. Peter says, look to him for meaning. And an eternity of meaning will open up before you. Righteousness, number three, we've seen reality and then revelation and then righteousness, morality. How do we live then? What does it mean to be good? What does it mean to, and this is why again, if the social pressures are coming down, that's why now the social pressures are to join with the righteous cause of deconstructing everything in order to find your sense of goodness and being enough there. And then when you jump into that, that becomes the new morality. Out of meaning comes morality, okay? Righteousness. How do we live? If God created a world with his delight and glory, then the world is hardwired with certain moral realities. Um, this is key. 
we often read our Old Testament and we go to Genesis 1 and we go, okay, God created the world. Then we get to like Exodus and God gives out the Ten Commandments. And you go, oh, like they went from like a couple people to a nation. So now things are getting a little out of control. And he's like, you're free now. And they're like, yeah, we're free. And so they start doing stuff. And he's like, wait, we need some rules here, guys. So he comes in like a kindergarten teacher and he's like, first rule, love me, right? Second rule, raise your hand, right? Be respectful. And he comes in with all these cosmic rules and he says, because we got to order this whole thing. And the idea is, in other words, as if those rules came in later, but that's not what's happening. All God is doing is making clear the, the re- moral realities that are already hardwired into the universe. See, God is not controlled by some ethical law that he, put, that he created. God is morally glorious and pure and good. And out of that, he created a world that's hardwired with that reality. And so that means we live in a world where if you murder someone, you will mentally and spiritually and emotionally just disintegrate. And you'll show up 20 years later if you get away with it, pleading with them to arrest you and, and put you in jail because of the fact that your mind, your soul cannot handle the guilt of having done that. Not to mention how it disintegrates society around us. We could go on and on about what, as far as coveting our neighbor, things like that, why that's there. The world has certain moral realities. Now what that means, let me, let me put it this way. You, you can have one or two responses. Uh, so the fish theme. Uh, my favorite joke of all time. Uh, what did the fish say when it ran into the wall? Damn. <laughs> oh, I love that joke. Um, why is it funny? It's funny because it's playing on two meanings of the same word, right? The first response to running into the wall is to say, what's this wall? What's this boundary? What's this reality I am coming up against as a human being? This reality when I'm sleeping around and I come up against reality is when I'm cheating on my wife, when I'm looking at pornography, when I'm stealing from people, whatever it is, when I start sinning, when I come up against a reality, this wall, it's called reality. And when I come up against it, I can say, that's a damn. That's something that's actually meant to keep me from going any further. And then I have a choice where I can, I can recognize what it is and then repent of that and turn away from that. Or the second option is to go with the other meaning, which is gosh darn it, right? When I hit it and I hit the wall and I just start raging against reality because of the fact that I'm angry that there's anything there outside of me that would actually limit me. And Peter is saying, There are realities in this world, and so yes, if you want to know a holy God, you must be holy. And if you are not holy, this holy God is not going to create an eternity where he'll say, let's sweep it under the rug and just come on in with all this, and then we just start this whole thing again in eternity. He's saying instead, you must recognize where you are not holy, where you have sin, but you have a son here who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is life in his son, who is the Holy One who entered into the world. And through him, you can become one with him and enter into a relationship with the Holy God of the universe. The moral realities in the world around us are not arbitrary. They're not socially constructed. Some are. Some are, right? 
But there are certain realities that are meant to point our heart to see our weakness, where we look for it in the wrong place and to point us to a holy God, to know him. And it won't do to find some kind of a righteous cause to bury that sense of a need for righteousness. All you'll do is join in a cause that will continue to go and you'll never do enough and the goalposts will always move. Jesus came into the world and he said, my life is enough. This is simply where you know righteousness. The fourth and last is the result. Where does this all go? Peter says you can know where this is all going. He says he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance. And then he goes on in verse 6, say, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is you can know the beginning from the end. That Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, has come into the world in order to save you and recreate you, remake you. And so your life doesn't have to be filled with fear and going through this life trying to chart away and figure out some end game to your life, some kind of arbitrary purpose, just something to make you feel better for a while. But instead, he says, you can know him. You can run towards him. And here's the thing, if you know where you're going, that completely changes everything in the moment. It gives you perspective. It's like when you're running a race and you, if you don't know, like, which way am I supposed to head? Can you imagine starting to run a race? And you're just like, well, start running. We'll let you know when you're done, right? Or you have to determine where do I go? How do I know if it's really the ending? And then in the midst of it, you have cramps and you have troubles and you have pains and you have all these things. You're running out of breath. You need water. All these difficulties of life come your way. And then how do you persevere through them? It's a whole different thing if you know that's where I'm running to. That's the one who I'm going to. But if you don't, it's extremely hard to persevere. And what he says is in Jesus Christ, you can have joy because you know all of these things. Yes, they are weighty. Yes, they are, are difficult. But in the midst of it, you can know that it is preparing for you a weight of glory and nothing in this world compares to. One of the things lately I've been, um, I, I was wrestling with this week, like how do I kind of really bring this down into my soul? Because I, I was realizing when working on this, I was like, yeah, I'm going to preach this. I feel like a complete hypocrite because I struggle with it, like swimming in the waters of our culture and I just get so overwhelmed with the realities around me. And when I'm reading this, I'm going, this is a whole other way of seeing the world, of navigating the world. And so I was like, how do I help myself get this? And so I, uh, we have a pool, which is pretty cool. And so we have a pool in our backyard and, uh, and this pool in the deep end is about six feet deep. And so when I'm done with the day and whatnot, I like to jump into the pool. And, and my daughter, she act, I have her actually stand on my chest because I've been trying to teach myself to breathe longer so I can go up to like over a minute now. And so when I go down to the pool, I go down to the bottom and I literally was putting my arms like this. Now, my daughter wasn't with me. So I was afraid like my wife was going to come and find me at the bottom of the pool. Like this. But I'm down there and it's enough time that I would go in there and I would just kind of catalog all the things that are just overwhelming me and all the fears that I'm having, and all the things I'm seeing on Twitter, the news that are just coming at me, and the things I'm trying to debate and trying to figure out. And in the midst of it, what I, I think about is that one day I will, I will go down six feet into the ground, and I will go down, and what will I think of these things? 
what will their place in my life be? What, what's the perspective here? And I realize what things will fade and what things will actually endure. It's really helpful because I'm getting ready to walk in the doors to my family, to my children. Is my heart attuned to just the waters that we're swimming in every day? Or my heart's attuned to a new kind of waters? The fact that in Jesus Christ we've been offered life. And, those and, and we picture it with baptism. We had a baptism in the first service. And what we do is we go down to the waters of judgment. Into realities of this world. But then we die with Christ and we rise to newness of life. And so what I do then is after thinking about that for about a minute, I just let my body slowly go up through the water. And then right then when my eyes open, when I break the water, I imagine what it's going to be like. When I die and all these things fade, and then I enter into the presence of the Lord forever. And I open my eyes in the twinkling of an eye. God has called us to know him, to prepare our hearts so we would enjoy his glory, his love, his beauty forever. That is the purpose of your life. And he says, run now, because that muscle is being trained. Perseverance is a muscle that's trained. But more and more, he's going to make you like Christ and the capacity that you have, like an eternal capacity that increases in your chest in every moment to see it in light of eternity. That's what God has given us in Christ. A few habits. That's one habit I've done. You're like, thanks, I don't have a pool. How am I supposed to do that, right? A uh, few habits that will help us. Three habits of hope. I'll have to hit these rather quickly. Uh, first habit, prayer. And I want to invite you in. I, I hope that what you're hearing, when we're talking about, you know, First Peter's talking about them being exiles, what does it mean to be Christians now in exile? And you're not hearing that this is like some shrill, like, like hand-wringing, oh, Christians, what are we going to do? The world is against us. And like freaking out. Like, no, this is just a sober assessment of what does it mean to know this world is not our home. It never was supposed to be our home. We should feel like strangers. We should feel like aliens. We should feel strange in this world. So how do we soberly take a hold of the truths of who God is. And I just want, if you're right now going, hey, this Christian thing, this is interesting hearing how you're constructing a worldview. I can see how the one I have isn't quite, it's kind of taken on water. What I would say is I would invite you even to these practices. You want to call it, try it on. This is like, you know, try it. It's like you go, try on clothes, right at a store, like try it on. Try these habits. The second thing I'll say, uh, these habits, there's nothing in them that's going to be that profound. Well, that's going to be that complex. Uh, I shared this story last year, some of you remember. I remember when I first started seminary, there was a class with a professor, and seminary is where you go to become a pastor, like a school for that. And, um, and for a lot of guys, what happens is they're, they're learning a lot of content, and their character can't catch up with that content, and so seminary becomes cemetery, and they die spiritually. It happens way too often. So the, the professor was interested in helping our souls be healthy. And he said, listen, you're in a master's program. If you can't get an A in this class, you shouldn't have gotten into a master's program. That's how he started. And he said, but here's the thing. If you do not take these things to heart, they're not going to be that complex. But if you don't take them to heart in five years, you're going to wonder what happened to your family, what happened to your kids, what happened to your ministry, to your faith, to your life, to your soul. So I'm about to say these things are not that complex, but they are profound, simple and profound, if we will ingrain them in our lives. So, prayer. If there is a God who is actually behind this, the, 
the reality of this universe. And he is the mover. He is the one who controls all things. But not only is he powerful, but he is personal. And we can know him. See, one of the realities, again, of, of living in a socially constructed world it, is it betrays the fact that we live in one and we know we live in one because what do we do when we're angsty, when we're overwhelmed? What have we started doing in the last five, six years? We don't go to the Lord. We don't, don't go into a closet. We, we go out into public and we post on social media. Why do we do that? I'm convinced the reason why we do that is because when our identity is socially constructed, the place where we have to go with our guilt, with our shame, with everything in life, with our hopes and our dreams, we have to go out to where it's constructed to the source of our reality and identity. Think about that one all day. From now on. In other words, what's happening is when we go, a lot of times we are praying, but where are we crying out to? From where does my help come from? The psalmist cried. Our help comes from the Lord. And he is the God of the universe, the Lord of the universe. And he not only is in power, but he is in saving power. And he wants us to know him. Jesus, the one thing that he taught the disciples to do was to pray. And he said, pray like this, Father, Abba, Father. It's the only time in ancient Jewish literature anywhere where somebody calls God Abba, Father. It's the first time because he knew him intimately. He said, I go before you. I am the one who is giving you a living hope. I've gone into his presence ahead of you. And so you can follow me into his presence by my spirit. And you can come into his presence and go, you are the holy God of the universe. You've made a way for me to be in your presence and go to him like a father. And like my kids, I, every time I walk in the door, it's like, shoo, 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 shoo. like how many kids does he have? Right? But I have kids on me. They're like, daddy, can I have this? Daddy, can I have a popsicle? Daddy, can I have candy? Daddy, can I have this? And I'm like, oh, it's bedtime, right? But the, my kids, they... They come to me and there's not any kind of, because they know I want their good. In the midst of stress, whatever's going on in life, realities, insecurities, go to the Father. That out there can't save you. It has its place. But make sure you go to where you can truly find that life. Where, just think about, where can I stop and pray throughout my day? What's filling my mind? Second one, fellowship. Uh, we, as I think Joe right, said earlier during the welcome time, after he awkwardly had you sit down and had you stand back up, <laughs> that was great. Uh, uh, we are made from community for community. We're made from a God who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God. And so he's made us. We're stamped in his image. Therefore, we are made for relationship. It's, a it's not a bug. It's a feature. Wanting relationships is a, not a bug. It's a feature. This is why for Peter, he's going to go into when you're socially isolated and banished, it's one of the worst possible, even in, our, even in an ancient world, even before the fact that it's because our identity is socially constructed, but even in an ancient world, it's just deeply human that it's so horrible and punishing to be isolated from other people in community. That's why it's so awful. I think right now, the most countercultural thing that we can do is form relationships where we are in the habit of saying, yeah, we're swimming in these waters, but this is actually the true water that we exist in. This is the true reality. And to be in one another's lives in such a deep way that we can know those insecurities and fears and things that are coming up and to be in the doubts and to be able to speak truth in one another's life, to remind of truth, to just pack truth in one another's life, to pray, to love. Admonishment in the New Testament is a word that comes from both the word for preposition for into, put into, and then also head or mind. 
It's literally like a picture of just, hey, we need, as Christians, we live in this world, we're drinking from the cultural waters, swimming in them. We need people around us who can go, hey, hey, actually, this is, you have Stockholm Syndrome. This is actually what's going on. And they kind of open up our head and go, this is what's really true. Cherish this. Do you have anyone in your life who right now you can share your deepest doubt, your deepest wrestling, your deepest pain, your deepest struggle? It's one of two things. Either you need to find, and this is a great place to start. I would ask you don't leave this place until you get connected. You can go over there under the lights. If you're on the community side, connect, community groups are there. Salt, I would, we'll have people over there as well. Get connected, get into life. Don't go out and just be swept away by the current because you'll start to, you have to deal with it. Or you're not being honest. But the bedrock of our fellowship with one another is not how put together we are. It's not our perfection, it's the perfection of a savior. We all come weak, we all come broken, we all come as sinners. So what we have in common is pursuing grace. So when you get together, pursue that grace. Third one, fellow witness, uh, the New Testament word for, the, for witness is actually the same word for martyr. I don't know if you knew that. It's the same word for the word martyr. So martyr, like giving your, laying down your life, dying for your faith. Why is that? Because to witness to something, we witness what we most value. We witness the thing that we think life is really worth. So if you think life is really worth the Cleveland Browns, that's me, then you're going to constantly be witnessing about the greatness of Cleveland Browns. If you think it's an iPhone, but listen, all of y'all are missionaries for something. All of y'all, whether it's a new phone, it's a new laptop, it's a sports team, it's some kind of, I don't know, cultural thing, it's your new car, whatever it is, we're all missionaries and witnesses for something. This is something great. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, make sure, and Peter's saying, if you want to really give your life to Christ, then make it a habit of looking around for where people don't have this reality and step into your life and say, I want you to know this reality. And what happens is often our heart follows with those words. And that's why it's important that it's a habit. If you wait around for the moment when you're like, well, I want to share my faith, but I don't want it to be awkward. I want to have all the right answers and I want them to respond and then we'll do baptism right away, right? Not gonna happen. Just cultivate love for Christ and let that flow out. And I think this is gonna look different in our day. Acts 17, Paul says that God has ordained all of the comings and goings, all the dwelling places of everyone in your life, every neighbor, every classmate, every work, uh, every person who you work with, everyone is in your life. And he says, why? Because they are feeling their way towards him. What's Peter or Paul describing there? He's saying that everyone in your life right now is fighting for that, for reality. In our day, they're fighting for, maybe this thing, if I grab onto it, will give me meaning. Maybe if I grab onto this thing over here, then I'll have that hope of the end because when, when death comes, when cancer comes, when these things come, I need something to grab onto. Where's this whole, where's this train going? Is it just going off a cliff? And he says, everyone in your life, your job is to get into their life well enough to know them, to extend grace, to extend love, to be there when they're saying, I'm fearful of this, I'm worried about this. And you say, wait, which one of these categories don't they have? And I know the Jesus, I know the God, I know Christ. And God has given us this reality in him. He's fulfilled. He's let me know what reality is behind all of it. And that's not a threat anymore, his holy reality. I've been reconciled into it. I can know righteousness. Whatever it is, they're searching for it in. And you take their hand and you say, it's not in career. It's not in hookups. It's not in getting blitzed and numbing yourself to this world. 
But there is a God who invites us in to feast with him. So we don't have to drink to forget. We can drink to remember. A life of joy. I would encourage you this week to just write down, identify who in your life does not have this hope. Differentiate. Okay, I'm going along, swimming along others in my life, and we're all just kind of going through the assumed ways of finding hope and life. And how do I differentiate and go, wait, actually, I'm just assuming this with them. Actually, I have this hope. How do I help them have this hope? Identify who you can share the gospel with. Listen, we live as exiles in a land that doesn't have this hope. Our neighbors, our city, our campus, they need this. And yes, we swim in the same cultural waters, but in Christ, we have been baptized into completely new waters. Completely new reality. And so when you're asked, in your soul, how's the water? You'll say, it's hopeful. I have a living hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these truths that you've declared the beginning, the end from the beginning, that, Lord, we have a reality we can put our feet firmly in, that, Lord, we have a reality that this is not by accident, but you are God who is glorious, has, and you have infused your entire creation, hardwired it with your glory. And so, Lord, you've made us to know you. You've given us purpose. And, Lord, You've called us to live in light of it, to know your holiness. You've made us righteous in Christ so that then we can grow in righteousness in Christ's likeness. And Lord, so that one day we would be in your presence and you would say, well done, good and faithful servant. We would lay down our crowns before you. We would raise our hands. We would worship you. And Lord, we would walk with you and cultivating that reality and delighting in your glory all into eternity in the new heavens, new earth. As we see that every chapter is better than the last. Lord, help us to live in light of that story. Live in light of that worldview, that framework. And Lord, give us habits that cultivate that reality deep into not just our heart, but into our bones. So we would know life. Thank you for the resurrection, living hope that we have because of you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.